Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome back to More Than a Muse. I am Stani. And I am Sadie. And today we have another ignored and I don't want to say forgotten because in some ways she is very remembered, but I didn't know who she was. And she is an amazing artist. And I'm excited to get to talk to her. Talk about I her today. Wish to I'm thrilled. I love these episodes. I get to sit back, relax, and learn about someone new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We haven't done this in a while, I don't think, of like give the brief explanation of like what we're doing here. And what I mean by that is like we're not here as experts or as genius art historians. No. We just learn new things every week and we share with you all what we've been learning. And I love all the things that we learn for this podcast. I love it. But yeah, so if it's a little bit more conversational than a typical history podcast, that's because, like I said, we are not historians, but nope. we love it. The benefit is you're getting our opinions, which I think is always fun. Yes. I remember I kind of always loved it in art history classes when the professor would get up and talk about someone and then they'd be like, and he was a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> and I hated you know? him. Yeah. Like it's enjoyable to kind of get people's opinions on the things that they hear about and mm -hmm. it makes history and like people from history more approachable. Yeah. And opinion. that's exactly what we're wanting to do is like make this yeah. approachable, make it accessible and like it sounds cheesy, but like make it fun. We want yeah, to make it exactly. fun. Well, I know that like both of us, the reason why we started this is just because like we were learning about people and then we didn't have an outlet to share about how amazing we found their mm -hmm. stories to be. And so it was like collecting these names of people that were so inspiring to us. And then yeah. there's like nothing to do with it. Exactly. So we just so, gave ourselves a platform. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Two years but later. Yeah, I had a breakfast brunch this weekend for a friend of mine and brought up the fact that I had a podcast and there are people that I've known for months now that they're like, you have a podcast? And I'm like, I know. I don't really <laughs> do a great job at like talking about it because sometimes it's like, yes, I'm another person with a podcast and that's kind of like a stereotype, you know, but I actually really am obsessed with what I'm doing. And yeah. And anyways, so I thought no, we'd give I a agree. brief explanation because I had to give that to the brunch and I had to own my podcast. So here we are. <laughs> I'm still working on that. Like finally I put it in like my little Instagram bio where like I'm a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know what? Like, yes, it sounds a little cringy. We're running with it. <laughs> yes. But I love it. And I love what we talk about. I love about. it too. This is like highlight of my week every week. So me too. And today who we are talking about is Isadora Duncan, who is a dancer. And I originally had stumbled on her name in an episode that I did last year sometime on Louis Fuller, 
who was also a Mm -hmm. dancer and a pretty revolutionary dancer. And yeah, in my research of her, I stumbled on the name Isadora Duncan and I just kind of made a mental footnote of that. And when I was trying to decide who I would cover this week, I was like, wait, I remember her. So anyways. You know what's funny? Every single time I hear the song Dress Now by Taylor Swift, I think of Louis Fuller. Yes. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's cool. I love that so much. And I guess shout out then to our previous episode on Louis Fuller. Go check it out. And then you can learn why the tie-in to Taylor Swift's dress is there. Hopefully that piques your interest a little Mm -hmm. and you're like, wait, what? Actually, though, I was looking at our Spotify stats this week and it shows like who our listeners also listen to. And the number one artist was Taylor Swift. So I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised by that either. (laughs) I had a feeling that all of our listeners were kindred spirits. If you're not a Swifty and you're listening, that's okay. You belong here. We love here. you too. We're happy with everyone who's here. But I suspect that there could be a common denominator of Miss Swift in all of our interests. Yes, agreed. Also, I really wanted to shout out. So we've shouted them out before in the podcast. We've like highlighted a bunch of their stuff. The jewelry company, Feminescence. Yes. They're Utah based. So they're like my little neighbor. And they make the coolest jewelry inspired by women from history, mm-hmm. which of course we're a thousand percent behind. And I got my little Artemisia Gentowski inspired bracelet today. Oh, is it so beautiful? I'm wearing it. <gasps> my little pearl bracelet. And she did a magnetic clasp. So you don't have to get help to like hook it on. It fits perfectly. That's amazing. Like, yeah, I also got some cute little earrings that I'm not wearing right now because they're gorgeous and I'm wearing headphones. We're podcasting. But she has like a bunch of stuff for a ton of different women we did a giveaway with some of her mary shelley earrings Mm -hmm. so just go check her out again like super super cool stuff her name's taylor she's wonderful like the sweetest human so go buy some historically inspired jewelry i love it anyways so going back to isadora wasn't able to finish it before it was time to record but i will still be finishing it even after which i think is a good sign of how good the memoir is but she has a memoir and it's just called my life and i love it and in the half of it that i've read i've really just fallen in love with this woman and i've fallen in love with the way that she is so bold and I've realized that something I really, really like about people or in people, a trait that I like is when they are just very, very confident in their opinions. And maybe especially if they have like controversial opinions, but they are just so like, this is what's true and this is what's right. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like with me personally, I'm always just like, I'm so hesitant to say what I really think if I have like a hard stance on anything because I'm so conscious of like oh no but if other people around me disagree are they gonna feel weird are they gonna feel comfortable like I'm the kind of person who is like constantly modifying the way I speak and the way that I'm interacting with the world based off of what I worry that other people's reactions will be and I'm not saying that's a good thing about me like that's something I'm trying to obviously (laughs) unwire in my brain yeah and so reading this book like she has story after story of instances where she is just like no I know what I have to offer is something worth checking out and if you don't realize that you're the problem and that is how her youth was and even she would just like say things just so matter-of-factly that were like controversial opinions 
mm-hmm. but just being like but this is right and I'm right and if you don't agree with me like what are you thinking and even if I'm reading it it's like well I don't necessarily agree with every single thing that she's saying in the book you know like in like one of the very first chapters or even I think in the introduction she goes on a little spiel about how marriage is like inherently bad for women to do you know like it it's inherently it will squash a woman's freedom and it's just an immediate sign of the patriarchy and it's just bad you know and <laughs> yeah like, I am a married woman and um and I and I disagree with that you know like sure it maybe is founded in patriarchy but I don't think it's inherently not uplifting I, I don't know what the word you know what I mean yeah but that's besides the point like she just had like really controversial quote-unquote opinions like that that she just said so matter-of-factly and I I don't know I realized that I really admire that in people which I guess if you know my husband you'll probably not be surprised by that and like who I just have historically been friends with they're usually <laughs> people who are pretty headstrong in their opinions that is so true but yeah. I just love that about people mm-hmm. and even if I don't agree with what they're saying I just I just love it when people own who they are and Isadora yeah. Duncan owned who she was and knew who she was and I love her for it I saw a video recently that was talking about how Gen Z would rather have like authenticity than anything else yeah and I yeah I think I I agree with that in a lot of ways it's like I don't really care even if you're like a major jerk (laughs) as long as you just are very authentic about it and that's who you are I know well Jordan will always like tease me about that he's like you'll let someone do a horrible thing but as long as they know it's a horrible thing you still like them and I'm like yeah (laughs) honestly you can get away with anything as long as you're self-aware about it yeah true it just kind of takes some of the sting off you're like the worst part is they didn't even know it and then you're like actually they knew exactly what they were doing and I respect that a little bit I mean granted I don't think Isadora Duncan was like doing awful horrible things she just you know we just view the world slightly differently and Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter I I absolutely love her and so at the end of this episode I hope that you feel inspired to go read that memoir it's one of my favorite memoirs I think I've ever read so please go finish it and start it I guess I'm going to be finishing it after this episode so another side thing that drives me crazy is that whenever people are talking about memoirs and they're like well it's not completely factually accurate and I think that's (laughs) so boring and stupid because like I don't read a memoir to get the exact perfect facts like I get them I read a memoir so I can know what their perspective and to like get to know them that is such a good point and at what point can we stop giving that disclaimer because now that I think about every single memoir review I've ever looked at has said well it's not exactly historically accurate and it's like this isn't a history book it's a memoir it's a memoir and like when I talk about my life like yeah I might mix up a couple memories or faulty like I don't know the thing that drives me crazy is when in reviews they almost like they use it almost like a damning character flaw on the person who wrote it. And it's like, I'm trying to get to know this person. And however they choose to tell me their story. Yeah, that's, that's how, how they decided to tell that's it. That's how they decided to tell it. And that's going to help me really get to know this person. So that's every funny. single memoir, there's like that disclaimer. And it's like, thank yes. you for explaining to me. That was like a huge is. thing with the Elizabeth Vigila Brune memoir, yes. too. They were like, well, it's told from her perspective, so you kind of have to take it at like with a grain of salt. And it's like, who cares? <laughs> She's one of the only people that survived that time period. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly who I was thinking of. And I thought that was interesting yeah. that we both chose people who like wrote memoirs about their mm-hmm. lives and anyways, had the same criticism, I guess. 
So I guess from now on, we can just all assume every memoir is subjective. There you go. (laughs) There we go. No more disclaimers. Anyways, well, I'm going to be reading a couple quotes from her memoir because I just I just loved it so much. To give a very brief overview, Angela Isadora Duncan was born May 26th, 1877 or May 27th, 1878, I guess. That is up for debate. I don't know. And then she died September 14th, 1927. She was an American dancer and choreographer who was a pioneer of modern contemporary dance. And she performed to great acclaim throughout Europe and the U.S. She was born and raised in California, but she lived and danced in Western Europe, the U.S. and the Soviet Union from the age of 22 until her death at age 50. So she died very young, but yes, was a big dancer and i'm gonna read this first thing which is actually from literally the opening paragraph of the author's introduction introduction and then another thing that she said you just immediately know who she is you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and that's what i love about her writing and the way she told her story is i really just felt like i was getting to know her so obviously a very successful memoir but this says i confess that when it was proposed to me that i had a terror of writing this book not that my life has not that my life has not been more interesting than any novel and more adventurous than any cinema and if really well written would be an epic making recital but there's the rub the writing of it so i just love that she's like not that my life has not been more interesting than every book and more adventurous than every movie it's just that writing it is scary so yeah you know she's very self-aware she's had an amazing life and then another thing she said is then another thing how can we write the truth about ourselves do we even know it there is the vision our friends have of us the vision we have of ourselves and the vision our lover has of us also the vision our enemies have of us and all of these visions are different i have good reason to know this because i have had served to me with my morning coffee newspaper criticisms that declared i was beautiful as a goddess and that i was a genius and hardly had i finished smiling contentedly over this when i picked up the next paper and read that I was without any talent, badly shaped, and a perfect harpy. (laughs) And I really loved that. And she goes on to tell a story too about a time where there was a particular critic who was really, really mean to her and hated her style of dancing. And she finally got the opportunity to sit down with him. And she was like, I use this as my chance. And I explained to him my methodology and all the care that I take in my choreography and like pretty much just explaining her passion for it. And at the end of the conversation, he says something along the lines of like, oh, well, I actually don't hear the music because he was deaf or almost deaf. And so she kind of had a moment of music is such a huge part of what I do. And if you can't hear it, of course, you're not going to understand what I'm doing. And so and she kind of says something along the lines of like, I don't have to have someone judging my dancing who can't even hear the music. And from then on, she talks about how she stopped paying critics any mind because she's like, everyone has their own life experiences of why they might not like my art. And you know what? Yeah, no wonder he doesn't like her dancing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, that is such a good point. And I thought that was like a very Pinteresty quote of like, don't let someone judge your dancing. They might not be able to hear the music the way you do. And I don't know, <laughs> very Pinteresty. But I also like that she was obviously really self-aware of the fact that she's like, who am I to like write this book? And do I even know myself? And like I said, if someone's self-aware, I immediately like them more. And so she just Fair. got me from the beginning. I'm going to read one more quote before I talk about her life. But continuing in her introduction later on, she says, any woman or man 
man who would write the truth of their lives would write a great work, but no one has dared to write the truth of their lives. Jean-Jacques Rousseau made this supreme sacrifice for humanity to unveil the truth of his soul, his most intimate actions and thoughts. The result is a great book. Walt Whitman gave his truth to America. At one time, his book was forbidden to the males as an immoral book. This term seems absurd to us now. No woman has ever told the whole truth of her life. The autobiographies of the most famous woman are a series of accounts of the outward existence of petty details and anecdotes, which give no realization of their real life. For the great moments of joy or agony, they remain strangely silent. And then she says, my art is just an effort to express the truth of my being in gesture and movement. It has taken me long years to find even one absolutely true movement and words have even a different meaning. I just love that any woman or man who would write the truth of their lives would write a great book. And also how scary it is to write your full truth. Because, I mean, in all actuality, if I were to write down my whole truth, it wouldn't be the perfect version of me that I would want everyone to see me as. Yeah. You know? I don't think anyone ever wants to really display their entire true selves out to people. And so I think that with this book, she at least made the effort to really tell her full story. While also at the same time, she loved her work and Mm. thought that it deserved more recognition and so I mean I'm sure one reading I guess of this book would be that she's very arrogant and very full of herself but like no she just knew what she had to offer and she wanted everyone else to see it and then she went on and she did and she spent her life creating art and creating dance and that's what she's remembered by and she was able to leave such a significant legacy because of that and so I love her well as for her life story filtered in will be many more quotes. So she was actually born in San Francisco and she was the youngest of four children of Joseph Charles Duncan, who was a banker, a mining engineer, and a connoisseur of the arts. And then she was also born and then her mom was Mary Isadora Gray. Her brothers were Augustine Duncan, Raymond Duncan, and then her sister Elizabeth Duncan was also a dancer. Throughout her life, what she says in the first chapter, first paragraph, she says, if people ask me when I began to dance I reply in my mother's womb probably as a result of the oysters and champagne the food of Aphrodite and then (laughs) my mother was going through such a tragic experience at this time that she often said this child that will be born will surely not be normal and she expected a monster and in fact from the moment I was born it seemed that I began to agitate my arms and legs in such a fury that my mother cried you see I was quite right the child is a maniac (laughs) wow that's Um, funny but then she also says later too i was born by the sea and i have noticed that all the great events of my life have taken place by the sea and she talks about how like that was probably the very first thing to really inspire her movement so wow yes but soon after her birth her father was found to have been using funds from two banks that he had helped to his own like private stocks and private funds Yes. Some white collar crime right there. Some white collar crime. But he avoided prison time. But Isidore's mother was very angry about this and divorced him. And from then on, though, their family struggled with poverty. We're going back to the book. So 
This says, my mother, who had been baptized and raised in an Irish Catholic family, was a devout Catholic up to the time when she discovered that my father was not the model of perfection that she had always thought him to be. She divorced him and left with her four children to face the world. From that time, her faith in the Catholic religion revolted violently to definite atheism, and she became a follower of Bob Ingersoll, whose work she used to read to us. Then, like, she talks about how the fact her mother would tell her, like, there's no such thing as God and there's no such thing as Santa Claus. Her mom was not... Not a very sentimental woman. This is, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep reading it. But when I was a, quite a baby, she revealed to us the secret of Santa Claus with the result that at school festival for Christmas, when the teacher was distributing candies and cakes and said, see children, what Santa Claus brought to you, I rose and solemnly replied, I don't believe you. There is no such thing as Santa Claus. Wow. <laughs> and then apparently the teacher said, well, candies are for little girls who believe in Santa Claus. And Isadora said, then I don't want your candy. Oh. <laughs> and then I apparently like went on this whole big speech of like I don't believe lies my mother told me that she's too poor to be Santa Claus it is only for rich mothers who can pretend to be Santa Claus and apparently it started a big ruckus at school and which yeah sounds about accurate I'm sure that would yeah cause a big ruckus at school that is funny so that just shows a window into what Isadora's childhood was like and what she was also like as a child and you know what honestly good for her mom to say nope Santa Claus isn't real because that's something that I've like seen people talk about with Santa Claus is like if you have a lot of extra money, maybe don't have the big gifts come from Santa Claus because then parents have to explain why Santa Claus gave some people a brand new laptop oh. and other people, you know. Fair. I think we're entering like a new age of parenting and Santa. It'll yeah. be interesting to see what happens. Like I mentioned, they divorced right after she was born so she didn't really have any memories of her father once when i asked one of my aunts whether i ever had a father she replied your father was a demon who ruined your mother's life holy crap and then she said that after that i always imagined him as a demon in a picture book with horns and a tail and when other children at school spoke about their fathers i kept silent which yeah that makes sense i feel like i'm missing something he embezzled money and it made her mother leave the church and call her a I wonder if like he also was unfaithful too. You'd imagine there'd be something else too. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm just like glancing over embezzling money, but I'm like, yeah, "Eh." but I've heard worse that like if (laughs) that's true. I, (laughs) I mean, I'm sure if like you have this image of someone who's like a kind, just honest person only to find out that all of your fortune is based off of them being so dishonest like that would be earth shattering fair I don't know if I would call them a demon but then again people have done more to me in my life and I haven't (laughs) reserved yeah I was gonna say like well no offense but you let people be like monsters so (laughs) who you should have called a monster slash a demon that's fair I can cut that wow. out if you want me to. <laughs> yeah, you're good. That's crazy though. Wow. Yeah. But after her parents' divorce, her mother moved with her family to Oakland, California, where she worked as a seamstress and a piano teacher. And she attended school from the ages of six to 10, but she dropped out because she found it constricting. And uh, she and her three siblings earned money by teaching dance to local children. So it kind of started out as a babysitting type thing where her and her sister, you know, would just go around and 
be like, oh, we'll take your kids. And then it actually turned into a little bit of a music school. And then she was like, well, I can make so much more money doing this. So much more worthwhile being here than at school. And then she also talks about the fact that like she just looked a little bit older than she was. She was taller for a 10 year old. So I think the parents were like, oh, yeah, I can take my kid off to her thinking she was like 16 years old. When in reality, she's like 10. So good for her. Her novel approach to dance has been evident since the classes that she had taught as a teenager, where she followed her fantasy and improvised teaching any pretty thing that came into her head. But then she had a desire, obviously, to pursue dancing. From a very, very young age, she knew that she wanted to dance. But it wasn't that she like wanted to dance in the way that was traditionally taught. Like She wanted to dance in the way that she felt inspired to. So eventually, she decided to move to Chicago, and she auditioned for a bunch of theater companies, but finally found a place in his name's Augustine Daly's company. Again, I'm going to the book to tell this story. Okay, so she talks about how basically like not, well, I'm gonna say bullied. She bullied her way into finally meeting this guy. And like, let's keep in mind, she is a teenager at this point. And they're in Chicago. Her and her mom just went alone. And they were pretty much like, when we have enough money, we'll send for you to her siblings. And they had basically nothing. She finally got into this audition. And this is what she said to him. She said, I have a great idea to put before you, Mr. Daly, and you are probably the only man in this country who can understand it. I have discovered the dance. I have discovered the art which has been lost for 2000 years. You are a supreme theater artist, but there is one thing lacking in your theater, which made the old Greek theater great. And that is the art of the dance, the tragic chorus. Without this, it is a head and body without legs to carry it on. I bring you the dance. I bring you the idea that is going to revolutionize our entire epoch. Where have I discovered it? By the Pacific Ocean by the waving pine forest of Sierra Nevada. I have seen the ideal figure of youthful America dancing over the top of the Rockies. The supreme poet of our country is Walt Whitman. I have discovered the dance that is worthy of the poem of Walt Whitman. I am indeed the spiritual daughter of Walt Whitman. For the children of America, I will create a new dance that will express America. I bring to you your theater, the vital sound that it lacks, the soul of the dancer. (laughs) Which she is, loves Walt Whitman. She loves Walt Whitman. <laughs> but then he like interrupts her. And then she's like, I continued raising my voice that the birth of the theater was the dance, that the first actor was the dancer. He danced and sang. That was the birth of the tragedy. And until the dancer and all his spontaneous great art returns to the theater, your theater will not live in its true expression. And she says that he did not quite know what to make of this thin, strange child who had the audacity to her him in this matter but all he replied was well i have a little part in a pantomime that i am putting on in new york you can report for rehearsals the first of october and if you suit you are engaged what's your name and she said my name's isadora and he's like that's a pretty name great we'll see you in new york in october so she goes and she like does pantomiming this one show that it's not very successful and she hates it. She doesn't even understand the point of it. And eventually they put on a showing of Midsummer's Night Dream. And she like tells the story about how like the very first night she was like the very first fairy and like went out dancing and how the entire audience like applauded her and loved the performance. But then the theater director like got kind of mad because he was like, you're not supposed to clap. Like that's not supposed to be a star moment of the show. So the next time she went out and performed, she still did it, but they like didn't have the lights on so that it seemed like a not something that the audience needed to pay so much attention to or something like that (laughs) 
Lame. I know it's lame. So with this company, though, they took her to New York, but her unique vision of dance clashed with his popular company. While in New York, she also took some ballet classes, but was very quickly realized how disappointed she was and hated ballet. She went to a famous ballet teacher, but she said, the lessons did not please me. When the teacher told me to stand on my toes, I asked him why. And when he replied, because it is beautiful, I said that it was ugly and against nature. And after the third lesson, I left his class never to return. (laughs) Well, that's so funny. I can't imagine anyone like telling a ballet teacher, like, why? Why should I stand on my toes? You know what I mean? Like, exactly. (laughs) That's hilarious. Because like, I don't know. That's what you do in dancing. Like, even I know that. I took ballet when I was six and I know you get up on your tippy toes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, honestly, reading this book, I'm like, man, I'm actually really enjoying my dance classes I've been taking. Like, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe Isadora is right. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But anyways, moving forward, I don't have any more quotes from the book, but I wanted to like start it out that way because I think I think we now have a sense of who this woman is and how she viewed her art. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing that she viewed her art this way. Like I said at the beginning, like it's one of the reasons why I love her. But she pretty much spent the rest of her life striving and just doing all she could to have other people appreciate her art the way that she did and the way she believed in it. But she felt very unhappy and underappreciated in America. So she moved to London in 1898. She talks about how like, her and her family, they didn't have enough money to get onto like an actual like passenger ship. So they kind of like not swindled like they didn't sneak on by any means but they convinced a captain of some like not the kind of ship that has people I can't remember the word for it right now but they offered to take them across the sea and passenger for a lot lesser of a fee so she always found a way to do what she wanted to do we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists I found this person on our Instagram Discover, always coming in clutch, and her name is Sofanova Maria. The username is Freya Maria Sofanova. Oh, yes. Spell it exactly how I said it, and you'll find her. Yeah, it's a lot of, like, portraits. Yeah. She's done a lot of, like, portraits of Anna Karenina, some, like, Maggie Smith from Downton Abbey, but they're, like, so beautiful and like really well lit like Uh (laughs) i'm describing that well like the lighting on her portraits is insane and she does what's called like speed painting so she'll like do it really quick too and ooh, that's cool yeah it's just they're gorgeous they're literally so beautiful i love it i'm just like scrolling through they're all so stunning i know i kind of love that she almost keeps it all black and white too because it's just like really cool uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah it's a lot of like historical portraits so it just looks like an old-fashioned like a black and white film it's really pretty yeah but I also feel like it's like, almost like I want her to like I don't know draw like every fantasy character that's in my mind you know what I mean from right? like, every book I read yeah honestly like fan art does not get enough credit for the fact that it like visualizes every single thing because it's just kind of fun to like see someone put the perfect description of a character into like real life i fully agree yeah i love this beautiful yeah just stunning check out her profile yeah just freya maria safanova today i'm spotlighting it's eyed.knit.that 
I knit that. The artist's name is Kendall and she has one of a kind and hand knit in Oklahoma City. And they are amazing. These are cute. Yeah. So they're like knitted vests, sweaters, but they really are one of a kind. And I love them. And a lot of them say like, funny things like the first one says I thought by now I'd care a lot less I wish I came with care instructions and it's a sweater that has like flowers and that (laughs) sorry I just found one that says is it too feminine would you be more impressed by this if a man made it (laughs) oh wow (laughs) or I will unravel which Mm -hmm. haha a sweater I love it hey do you think this is considered art I'm not 100% sure let me know what you think (laughs) that's funny i absolutely love this it's just a craft until a man says it's art which mm -hmm. shout out to our weaving women episode we keep shouting that episode out so these are so trendy right now too yeah and they're so bright and colorful and i love them so much later on she has one of her wearing like a knitted like set of a shirt and pants with a cowboy hat and Mm -hmm. i feel like that is a vibe apparently oh wait her next drop is literally tomorrow that we're recording this january 20th at 9 a.m last week (laughs) so sorry but follow her i'm sure she does them more but like she also has prints of like the sweaters and stickers and things like that so you can go check out her prints and patterns. Oh, and patterns. I did not even realize that. You That's can amazing. learn how to make one yourself. That's amazing. Oh, man. There's a, cr- there's a sticker that says it's just a craft until a man says it's art. That is so ooh, tempting. Ooh, that is. <laughs> it's a good sticker. Oh, man. I love that. Cool. Yes. Yeah, well, I dot that. knit that. Shout out to Kendall. All right. Now back to the show. So she gets to London. She performed actually in the drawing rooms of the wealthy and she took inspiration from Greeks, the Greek vases and everything that she was seeing in the British Museum. Like I mentioned, they were really did not have a lot of money and they were like basically always just barely getting by to like make the rent that they were living in. And it was her, her mom and all of her siblings, I believe, except I think one of her brothers at this point didn't come to London with them. But she talks about how they would spend just all day in the museums and would just be so inspired and like would draw the things that they were seeing in the museums. And they just absolutely loved it. But the earnings from her dancing in the wealthy people's rooms for their entertainment enabled her to rent a studio, which allowed her to develop her work and create larger performances from the stage from london they moved to paris for a while where she was actually inspired by the louvre obviously Um, again they went from the british museum to just spending a lot of time in the louvre and in france she did the same thing where she would basically just like meet other artists meet more wealthy people and perform for them in their salons and at their dinner parties and things like that. Sounds like a wonderful time. It did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The thing that happened in London a lot of the time she talked about is that like people wouldn't necessarily pay her 
for doing it sometimes like they would almost be like wow this will give you great exposure this will put you in front of audiences (laughs) but also like they didn't maybe know what her financial situation was actually like and almost like she was worried that if she told them how much she needed the money like maybe that would not bode well for her kind of a thing if i'm understanding right from her memoir in 1902 louis fuller so there's the connection she invited duncan to tour with her and this took duncan all over europe as she created new works using this innovative technique and it inspired like natural movement in contrast to like rigid traditional ballet so what exactly was her technique i'm imagining a lot of like spinning yeah (laughs) but that could be wrong (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i think it is just like much more of like what you would view as like contemporary modern contemporary dance yeah exactly i don't think they actually have even that many videos of actually her dancing but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of her pupils and students that do and that have and i was watching a little bit of a documentary on her where they did have her students like dancing and doing the art and yeah i guess i mean not to like belittle it, but it, it does kind of feel like the more typical, like what you would imagine contemporary modern dance. It was very flow, very freeing. And it, and it yeah. was beautiful. And I mean, and it was at the beginning of that time. So I'm sure it was extremely revolutionary. Yes, like, exactly. You have ballerinas and then you have her and Louis Fuller over there mm-hmm. doing their thing. Exactly. So, yeah. Maybe. So it's like a CM music video. No, yeah. I can picture that. <laughs> I, I would say so. But she spent most of the rest of her life touring Europe and the Americas in this fashion. She got, like I mentioned, mixed reactions from critics, but she did become quite popular for her distinctive style. And she inspired actually a lot of visual artists who went on to create works based on her. In 1910, she met the occultist Alistair Crowley at a party. And then he said in his book, Confessions, he refers to Duncan as Lavinia King and used the same invented name for her in his 1929 novel Moonchild. And then Crowley wrote of Duncan that she has this gift of gesture in a very high degree. Let the reader study her dancing, if possible, in private, then in public, and learn the superb unconsciousness, which is magical consciousness, with which she suits the action to the melody. Hmm. There's one story that she told about it was a more lesser known composer that she loved his music and her mom would like play the songs and she would dance and she was like in the studio dancing and the composer I guess overheard and was like no why are you dancing like my music was not made to be danced to and she was like okay well let me just show you let me show you how I do this and if you hate it I promise you I will never do it again like I'll never dance to your music again and then she does she performs for him and he's like in tears and is crying and she thought that was like wow such a you know a beautiful story of but also i loved it that she's like okay fine if you hate it i'll never do it again but like let me just show you first yeah which i loved there was also oh my gosh i cannot remember the name of the was it mendelssohn there was a certain composer that she said that she like had the opportunity to dance to his music and that he was in the audience and she was so excited about when it was happening but he didn't really say anything to her but then years later he was like wow your dancing is revolutionary and so beautiful in this and she was like well you've seen me do it it was like for your music and you ignored it and he was just like 
oh and i just think that's a funny thing that happens to artists where like it's not amazing until everybody thinks so yeah you know until enough people have given it the stamp of approval and then all of a sudden it's the greatest thing they've ever seen yes mm-hmm. oh humans oh humans she also had a really good friend named mary dempsey who was like also known as mary dest or Desty. she had come to paris in 1901 where she soon met isadora duncan and the two of them became inseparable and that name she- sounds so familiar yes it does do you th- was she in the in louis fuller story i too? she must have been in the louis fuller story as well so it sounds familiar. really familiar but they were inseparable there's like some like ooh, was it a romantic relationship was it not I don't know, but probably, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of funny. I saw a thing about that recently on Instagram where I was like, everyone assumes that all of these female friendships were relationships because they're Uh like, oh, but the way that they talked to one another and everything. Uh And then it's like, maybe like we're seeing too much into it. Maybe we're not seeing enough into it. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, but if you're that close to your female friends, you're obviously in love with them. Yeah. And it's like, you know, female friendships are like a beautiful, very dynamic thing. That is, yes, very, very true. Because it's easy to be like, oh, well, it wasn't as obviously as openly accepted back in the 1800s. So they must have just been secretly in love or had an affair that wasn't public. But it's like, but maybe they actually were just like great female friends. And like, it that doesn't have to be inherently a sexual thing no even like little girls they're extremely affectionate with one another like they'll Mm -hmm. hold hands and stuff and there's nothing romantic about it for them they're just like Mm -hmm. they're best friends they adore each other yeah i don't know i'm like i'm not saying that it wasn't a relationship i'm just saying that sometimes i feel like history is like starting to put a lens yeah on all past relationships that way Mm -hmm. which is interesting yeah in 1911 the french fashion designer paul poiret poiret he rented a mansion the pavilion du petard in la salle saint cloud my french and through (laughs) lavish parties including one of the more famous grand fets called la fets de b-a-c-c-h-u-s Bacchus, I, no I don't know. <laughs> On June 20th, 1912, recreating the Bacchanalia hosted by Louis the 14th, 16th at Versailles. Apparently that's a big oh. famous party. But she was there wearing a Greek evening gown designed by Puree and danced on tables among 300 guests. 900 bottles of champagne were consumed that night until the first light of day. Which wow, love that. Now I like that party had its own Wikipedia page, or <laughs> basically, or like the invented, you know. Oh my gosh! So we I are not it. having enough parties as a society. No, we absolutely are not. We're not like disappointed. That. I mean, I guess like maybe the future podcast episodes of years from now, hundreds of years from now, will be like and Coachella. I don't know. I guess uh, I guess could be something similar, but that sounds more fun. I know. I'd rather go to a masquerade ball in a rented out mansion than the desert of California. <laughs> True. <laughs> so I've always wanted to go to Coachella. Maybe one year. Maybe we can plan it. Ooh. More than a muse field trip to Coachella. Coachella. <laughs> That's obviously the kind of content creators, you know. I want to like go back in time to when no one went to Coachella and go yeah. then. That's true. 
while we're at it let's also go to woodstock just for a day i'd be down amazing all right we'll continue with isadora obviously she disliked the commercial aspects of public performance such as touring and contrasts because they felt she felt that they distracted her from her real mission which was the creation of beauty and this artwork and then also she wanted to educate other younger dancers so she actually opened schools to teach young women her philosophy of dance in 1904 this was established in berlin this institution was the birthplace of the isadorables or isadorables i don't know exactly how you'd say basically isadore a-b-l-e-s she had a group fan name basically yes it was a group of six young girls who danced under her instruction their nickname was actually given to them by the french poet fernand Mm -hmm. de voray in 1909 and they actually were all later given the duncan last name because isadora adopted all of them wow yes exactly (laughs) they were mostly german girls and they danced in the modern style they were known as barefoot and as aesthetic dancers between 1905 to 1920 and they emerged from her schools and had careers with her duncan herself Later, though, some of them lost their relationship with their mentor and the whole group disbanded. But yeah, for a while, she adopted all six of the girls and taught them her art and they became her protégés, basically. Yeah, she legally adopted all six girls in 1919. They took her last name. After about a decade in Berlin, though, she established a school in Paris that soon closed because of the outbreak of World War One. Mm. Yes. 1914, she moved to the United States and transferred her school there. I think she was in New York. Yes, she was in New York. And then she had a studio where she did her, you know, her performances and her teaching. During her time in New York, she posed for studies by the photographer Arnold Genth as well. So just to say that like she was surrounded by other creators, visual artists, yeah. poets, writers, like She was within those circles. This is crazy. She had planned to leave the United States in 1915 abroad, the RMS Lithuania, on its ill-fated voyage. So she would have gone down in that ship. But her financial situation at the time actually chose her, like drove her to choose a more modest crossing. So again, I'm sure she just kind of hopped on whatever boat would let her go. And she went... (laughs) Back to Europe, 1921, her leftist sympathies actually took her to the Soviet Union, where she founded a school in Moscow. I guess the Soviet government had like promised to support her work, but they did not follow through on that financial support. So then it caused her to return to the West and leave the school to her protege named Irma. And then Mm -hmm. in 1924, she composed a dance routine called Varshavianka to the tune of the Polish revolutionary song known in English as Whirlwinds of Danger. So more political, went to Russia for a long time. I think she was like a Soviet Union or Russian, I guess, citizen when she died. Continuing on. So I want to talk a little bit about her philosophy and her technique. Obviously, she broke all conventions um (laughs) she imagined that she had traced dance to its root as a very sacred art she developed this notion of like free natural movements inspired by the classical greek arts folk dances social dances and just nature in general um 
She wrote of American dancing, let them come forth with great strides, leaps, bounds with lifted foreheads and far spread arms to dance. Her focus on natural movement emphasized steps such as skipping outside of usual ballet technique. Like I mentioned at the beginning, she cited the sea as an early inspiration for her movement, which she believed movement and she believed that movement originated from the solar plexus. Isn't the, cool. the solar plexus is like it's like your, your gut kind of. Yeah or like you're the bone right underneath your lungs yeah 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 mm-hmm. i like ended up doing a bunch of like random chakra research because oh, yeah. of i was watching glass onion again uh-huh. and he assigned each of them a room based on which chakra he like associated oh. with them with okay yeah and so i like ended up in this like weird little loop of like well what do they represent uh-huh. <laughs> like, anyway <laughs> it was enjoyable highly recommend <laughs> no it's really interesting to learn about but yeah she placed an emphasis on evolutionary dance movement insisting that each movement was born from the one that preceded it that each movement gave rise to the next and so on in a very like organic succession i quote and it is this philosophy that she that basically gave her the title of the creator of modern dance. Wow. Yeah, I know. I just think it's amazing. A quote from her is, I spent long days and nights in the studio seeking that dance, which might be the divine expression of the human spirit throughout the medium of the body's movement. She believed that dance was meant to encircle all that life had to offer, both joy and sadness, which I think is like really beautiful that she really sought to find the divine in what she was doing and that she believed it was there to be found. Yeah, I love that. There is something like very ancient and like spiritual about dance. Yeah, because it's like it always had to have been here. Yeah. Like that, like that's one of the earliest forms of human expression. Uh Uh-huh. And how you move your body. And there's so many different like forms of it and everything. It's just very, very interesting. I know. I love it. Learning more about her made me want to know more about dancing in general. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I loved it. So a note about her personal life. So she actually bore three children that were all out of woodlock. The first two, Deidre Beatrice, was born September 24th of 1906, whose father was a theater designer, Gordon Craig, and then Patrick Augustus, born May 1st, 1910, by Paris Singer, who was one of the many sons of the sewing machine magnate Isaac Singer. Oh, okay. The Singer sewing machine. Yeah. That's that's a legacy. Apparently, (laughs) they were drowned like they were in the care of her nanny of their nanny and their car went into the river and they drowned that is so tragic like the biggest tragedy i know following the accident she spent several months just with her brother and her sister and in her autobiography she like talks about just how deep her despair was over the deaths of her children. And she actually like begged a young Italian stranger who was a sculptor named Romano Romanelli to sleep with her because she was desperate for another child. She actually became pregnant and gave birth to a son August 13th, 1914, but he actually died shortly (sighs) after birth. And that is so sad. It is so sad. In the introduction of it, she talks about like just very briefly at the beginning about her 
children dying. So she awakens by someone saying the children have been killed. She said, I remember a strange illness came upon me only in my throat. I felt a burning as if I had swallowed some live coals, but I could not understand. I spoke to him very softly. I tried to calm him. I told him it could not be true. Then other people came, but I could not conceive what had happened. Then entered a man with a dark beard. I was told that he was a doctor. It is not true. He said, I will save them. I believed him. I wanted to go with him, but people held me back. I know since that this was because they did not wish me to know that there was indeed no hope. They feared the shock would make me insane, but I was at that time lifted to a state of exaltation. I saw everyone about me weeping, but I did not weep. On the contrary, I felt an immense desire to console everyone. Looking back, it is difficult for me to understand my strange sense of mind. Was it that I was really in a state of clairvoyance and that I knew that death does not exist, that those two little cold images of wax were not my children, but just their cast off garments, that the souls of my children lived on in radiance, but always lived? Once, only twice comes that cry of the mother when one hears as without oneself at birth and at death. From when I felt in mine those little cold hands that would never again press mine in return, I heard my cries, the same cries as I heard at their births. Why the same, since one is the cry of supreme joy and the other of sorrow? I do not know why, but I know they are the same. Is it that in all the universe there is but one great cry containing sorrow, joy, ecstasy, agony, the mother cry of creation? Wow. And I just, oh my goodness. Like, I just loved how she was like, the only times I ever cried like that was when they were born and then when they when they had died. And I, I don't know, I... Uh, it's very reflective but it's it's very heartbreaking and yeah definitely but she obviously loved her children and it's such a tragedy and after that once they had passed away in 1913 she didn't really pursue her art as as much which makes complete sense she had like many relationships in her life both with men and women there's one in particular mercedes diacosta who was a poet, playwright, novelist, and she's pretty much like known for having a lot of affairs with Broadway, Hollywood personalities, including Isadora Duncan, but then also like a lot of men that she had met even as a young girl. Her memoir goes into a lot more about her relationships and how she felt about them, and it was very interesting. But her later years, by the 1920s, she was very depressed by the death of her three children, that her performing career had dwindled. She was also distraught by feeling that she had lost her daughters some of the the adorables <laughs> whom she had adopted to a, apparently the greedy wiles of the older men they had encountered while touring in the U.S. And she ran into a lot of financial troubles at this time, um, scandalous love life and just public drunkenness. And she spent her final years moving between Paris and the Mediterranean, pretty much just running up debts at hotels. She spent short periods in apartments rented on her behalf by like decreasing numbers of friends and supporters, many of whom had attempted to assist her in writing her autobiography because they hoped it might be successful enough to support her but then her autobiographer my life was actually published in 1927 shortly after her death so she didn't really get to appreciate the financial benefits of that but I'm so grateful that she did write it still before she did pass away there's a lot of people who've like written about her there's a book called Isadora an intimate portrait by Sewell Stokes he met Duncan in the last few years of her life and he described her extravagant waywardness and also 
<laughs> Zelda Fitzgerald wrote about how her and her husband, F. Scott Fitzgerald, sat in a Paris cafe watching a somewhat drunken Duncan. He would speak of how memorable it was, but all that Zelda recalled was that while all eyes were watching Duncan, Zelda was able to steal the salt and pepper shakers from the table. <laughs> Which... <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. But about her memoir, an Australian composer, Percy Granger, called it a life-enriching masterpiece. And I, so far, would agree. The way she died is, like, actually in a tragic freak accident that I don't really, like, want to describe too much. But on September 14th in 1927, she was a passenger in a car, and she wore a very long, flowy, hand-painted silk scarf, and it was a convertible. And Oh, no. I feel like I know where this is headed, and I'm not happy about it. Yeah. Dusty saw her off. She had asked her to wear a cape in the open-air vehicle because of the cold weather, but she would agree only to wear the scarf. As they departed, she reportedly said to Dusty and some companions, Adieu, mes, mes amis, je vais à la glory. Farewell, my friends, I go to glory. But according to other people, it says, Goodbye, I am off to love, which she thought was embarrassing because it suggested that like her and the person that she was going with were like, you know, going off to make love. So I think they like tweaked history a little bit to say i go to glory <laughs> as opposed to i go to love both are beautiful in their own little way <laughs> exactly which like as is her right go to love mm-hmm. but yeah like her scarf like got in the car and got snagged on something and she like yeah it's freak accident that is horrific it is a horrific way to go yeah um, well i will never be driving in a convertible car with a scarf um, with a scarf. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson from Isadora Duncan. And it's sad, too, because she was 50. Like, she died really young. But she was cremated and her ashes were placed next to those of her children in the cemetery in Paris. On the headstone of her grave is inscribed, École du Ballet de l'Opera de Paris, Ballet School of the Opera of Paris. As far as her legacy, which is amazing, she is known as the mother of dance. While her schools in Europe did not last long, her work had an impact on the art and her style is still danced based upon the instruction of Maria Theresa Duncan, Anna Duncan, and Irma Duncan, three of her six adopted daughters. Apparently, like the adoption process was never verified, so I don't know how it happened, but all six of those dancers changed their name to Duncan. But by 1913, she was like already being celebrated. So like while she was still being alive, her work was being celebrated. The Theater des Champs Elise was built. Duncan's likeness was carved um, over the entrance by a sculptor and included in painted murals of the Nine Muses by Maurice Denise in the auditorium. Ooh, so love like that. very significant. And then in 1987, she was inducted into the National Museum of Dance and Hall of Fame. Anna, Lisa, Teresa, and Irma, who were all pupils of Isadora Duncan's first school, they carried on the aesthetic and the pedagogical principles of Isadora's work in New York and in Paris. There was also another choreographer and dancer, Julia Levin, who was instrumental in furthering her work during the formation of the Duncan Dance Guild in the 1950s um, and the establishment of the Duncan Centenary Company in 1977. Another means by which her dance techniques were carried forth was in the formation of the Isadora Duncan Heritage Society, who by Minion Garland, who had been taught dance by two of her key students. Garland was such a fan that she later lived in a building erected at the same site and address as Duncan once lived, which is wow. crazy. And there's a commemorative plaque now there. And Garland also succeeded in having San Francisco rename an alley on the same block from 
Adelaide Place to Isadora Duncan Lane. So I, you know, it's just cool that we can see actual concrete ways that people champion, you know, the people that they love and seeing it work. Also, I'm going to take away this, but in medicine, there is the Isadora Duncan syndrome that refers to injury or death consequent to entanglement of neckwear with a wheel or other machinery. So what legacy to leave? Yeah. So that's a horrible Ooh. thing. But I do want to mention some of the cool things and ways that she is still like in pop culture. And I think this is like one of those things where it's like you don't know she's there, but like then you see her like reading through. There were so many TV shows and movies that she's been referenced. 1968, there was actually a film called Isadora that was nominated for the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. It stars Vanessa Redgrave as Isadora Duncan. And the film was based in part on her autobiography. And she was actually nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance as Duncan. So, wow. Cool biopic from the 60s. 1989, there was a documentary called Isadora Duncan Movement from the Soul that was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 1989 Sundance Film Festival. It's like $2 to rent on Amazon. I was watching that as I was doing my research. So if you want to learn more about her, would recommend. Yeah, that's great. In 2016, Lily Rose Depp actually portrayed Duncan in The Dancer, which was a French biographical musical drama of the dancer Louis Fuller that I'm just now discovering existed. I don't know if I mentioned that when we did the Louis Fuller episode, which was a super miss on my part. We know now. We know now, so we can go watch that potentially. And then in 1976, Friedrich Ashton created a short ballet entitled Five Brahms Waltzes in the Manner of Isidore Duncan. And then Marie Rambert claimed after seeing it that it was exactly as she remembered Duncan dancing. So... That's cool. And then in 1981, she was also the subject of a ballet, Isadora, written and choreographed by the Royal Ballet's Kenneth Macmillan and performed at the Covent Garden. I mean, that's kind of ironic that it was a ballet as opposed to how much she hated ballet. But like, obviously, they'd made it more her dancing style (laughs) and not actual ballet. Anyways, well, that is the brief overview of Isadora Duncan. I mean, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I got to stop putting all the quotes in from her memoir or else I'm just going to be reading the book to all of you I mean, and then pay me to <laughs> read the audiobook at this point. <laughs> yeah, sell your audio on Audible, make some money. Yeah, exactly. Um, that is an insane story. Yes. So thank you for and sharing. There are so many just crazy and cool anecdotes yeah. from her life that just do so well at demonstrating who she is so yeah she's also a beautiful writer a beautiful writer yeah beautiful writer she definitely could have made a living doing that as well because everything you read was just stunningly beautiful that's what i think too one last story anecdote that i will tell is so when she was in chicago she met a guy fell in love they were engaged and then she finds out later that he had a wife back in london so she cut things off but then once she's in london she actually hears that he has died and so she decides that she's going to find his wife and meet her so she shows up at the woman's home and the woman is like oh i know who you are and they actually like come in and like bond over this the fact that they like both loved him but that he's dead but then what had happened is the guy had gone to Chicago to like pursue his art 
and had left her where she was like still like a governess at a girl's school. And she had always talked about how like, oh, I was just waiting for him to tell me to come meet him. And Isadora talks about like how she like did not understand that. How she was like, if she wanted to go be with him, why did she not just go be with him? Like, why would have she spent so long here and all of that? And I just thought that was such a, I think that's just like very telling of who she was. You know what I mean? Where she's like, didn't even understand the fact that she would do that. There's a quote here where she says, how simple some people's lives can be. I was madly in love and I believe that since then I have never ceased to be madly in love and she was just like always chasing things like that and I don't know like there's so many quotes too from the book where she's like I shall be very famous one day I told her and it will redound to your credit that you recognized American talent she knew what she wanted she knew that she had something very important to share with the world and she chased it and she didn't understand people who didn't chase the things that they wanted and I think she left a very great legacy. It's sad that in her like final years, she, you know, emotionally was not doing well and that she suffered such great tragedy. But I think she left an amazing story to be told. And yeah, go read that memoir. Definitely. That's incredible. Wow. Well, thank you for telling us all about Isadora Duncan. Happy to. Um, That is wonderful. I love learning more about dance because I know nothing about it. (laughs) I know absolutely nothing. So that's incredible. Yeah. We will be back next week and Mm -hmm. we are moving to the theater. Yeah. Um, So come join us next Monday to talk all about that. Yeah. It's a topic that was actually originally requested from a listener. So shout out to you. I hope you're still listening and I'm excited to talk about it. So join us next week. It'll be a good one. Cool. Bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.